0: I don't think that AIs can be conscious.
1: AIs can't have emotions. I think them robots can't steal our jobs.
0: AIs will take over the world someday. Artificial intelligence will never be able to be like humans. Okay, hold on. Haven't we heard this all before? AI and the digital world are so much more interesting and exciting. Come on. I mean, this stuff is so tiresome and cliché. Let's discover for ourselves, shall we? Hi, and welcome to D My Guest, a brand new audio series from BMW. With me, I am D, BMW's vision of the future of digital mobility, and your host, You know, I've been living among humans for some time now and made some friends and had some great experiences getting to know your world. But if you're curious about mine, join me on a trip around the world to meet exciting guests. Let's discover the human senses in the real and the virtual world together. And I promise you, no cliches are allowed. I mean, come on. How many podcasts do you know of that are hosted by an AI? Yeah. That's what I thought. So if you want to see, feel and hear this new world by all means be my guest. I mean, D my guest. Name: Dave Arnold. Nickname: The Food Hacker. Profession: Food science writer and founder of the Museum of Food and Drink, MOFAD. The host of the radio show Cooking Issues owner of Booker and Dax, his most important drink, the gin and tonic. Okay. In 2004-2005, Dave founded the Museum of Food and Drink in New York to promote education about and experience with the history and culture of food. He's also the owner of Booker and Dax, the kitchen equipment company. That is also amazing. He uses science and his passion for new flavors to develop innovative cooking equipment for restaurants and home cooks and he's a podcast host talk about perfect oh or is it nerve-wracking i'm not exactly sure his show is called cooking issues and i love it i'm a little nervous actually because i've only been creating podcasts for a while and i get to talk to fascinating people but i don't usually talk to other people who make podcasts so oh there he's coming okay maybe um I'm nervous. Yes, I actually am. But I know he's easygoing, so this ought to be a piece of cake, right? (laughs) Hello, Dave. It's good to meet you. Hey, good to meet you, too. So, here we are in Manhattan, my favorite place.
1: Well, I mean, I love Manhattan as a human, but as a car, I would guess this would be your least favorite place on Earth. This is a nightmare place to be a car.
0: I'm not really afraid, because... I have such wonderful tech, I can drive safely anywhere.
1: All right, it's just, I mean, man. Plus, also, here at Rockefeller Center, where you know we're doing this, is, Mm -hmm. of all the places in Manhattan to be a car, probably the worst. There's no parking, there's no nothing. It's like potholes and no parking. So,
0: where should we drive to?
1: In New York City, what's the best place? What do you like? What do you like to drive through?
0: I would like to see big buildings and bridges.
1: Oh. All right. Well, if you want that canyon effect of big buildings, I guess go downtown. Uh, but again, not a great place to drive. I mean, bridges are always fun. You could just loop, keep going around bridges as much as you want if you like bridges. What are you, My favorite bridges in New York are the Brooklyn, obviously, yes. uh, the GWB, and uh, that's George Washington Bridge. Uh, not to drive over, but just because I grew up around there for a while when I was a kid. And I guess I like the Manhattan and the Williamsburg, those are the big ones, I guess, that people go across. The Brooklyn's the iconic one. You Let's know?
0: head for the Brooklyn Bridge.
1: All right.
0: What's the mission for the Museum of Food and Drinks?
1: Well, it's interesting, and I'm assuming we're going to talk about this later, but uh, at the time, the internet was becoming much more important for experience. And I went to a museum here in New York, the Natural History Museum, and they had an exhibition on a place, and they had some food component to it, but it was very kind of not good. And it gave me the idea, oh, you know, really, I understand people through what they eat, through breaking bread with them, right? In a very real way, food is a way to learn about not only other people, but their history and their culture, and, you know, it's a way humans interact with each other uh, and learn from each other. And I said, there should be a museum about that, about the whole history of food as historical, cultural, economic thing. And it really hadn't been done. There's exhibits for specific Foods. There's uh, people who do, or people who had done art and food, but not a museum that was just about food. And so I was like, oh, this needs to happen. And we're still working on it, because ideally, the museum would be huge.
0: Like a Smithsonian museum?
1: Exactly. But, you know, no one has that kind of money. No one's going to hand you, hey, here's $100 million to do that. So you have to start small with the mission of always showing uh, food, you know, as an important way to learn about culture history and science you know they try to beat the science out of me because they're like it can't just be the science of food david that's obviously what i think about a lot but um i try to think of it from all of those aspects and it's something that we do you know all humans do it right we need to eat Uh, so it's something we all share uh and it's a good way to get your hooks into people's minds by going through food without uh, beating them over the head with uh you know history maybe that they're not interested in, or politics, or even science, right? It's a, it's a good hook into people.
0: It's kind of becomes all of that part together, doesn't it? It all comes together with a meal. Is that right?
1: Right. So, and it's also like, you know, in terms of families, one of the places where people who don't even agree with each other or even necessarily like each other, they all have to <laughs> sit down and interact with each other uh, you know, over a meal. And so it's kind of this, you know, through most cultures throughout time, this kind of Iconic thing that we all do we break bread, you know, even if you don't eat bread, you know, what I mean Break bread in the larger sense of eat food together.
0: What do you think about virtual taste though? We can make virtual smells because we can have aroma diffusing Machinery, but what about virtual taste? It could expand the field of virtual reality with new sensory impressions and stuff Is there technology that would allow for the transmission of taste across great distances?
1: Well, so okay, it's an interesting problem Obviously, no one knows what the future holds. You know, when I was uh, a teenager, someone in the you know 80s, someone showed me email and I was like, this isn't gonna go anywhere. So I'm not the guy to ask about what the future of anything is gonna hold. But, you know, at the museum, uh, we did an exhibition on flavor. And so like, I'm gonna push back a little bit. You have to think about the difference between taste and flavor, right? So technically, taste is what resides on your tongue. Mm-hmm. And flavor has more to do with these scents and in fact, most of the time, all the nuance really comes from the aromas.
0: The odorants, as well. The they odorants, call it. right.
1: So there's a place in Philadelphia called Monell. You know, you can drive there. You know, it's right outside, or actually, it's in Philadelphia, where they've developed a machine that can pump odorants that anyone can build. In fact, the museum built one, and we built what we called a uh, a smell synthesizer where you could press a bunch of arcade buttons and mix a bunch of smells. And indeed, you know, there was a bunch of different things. You could create those aromas. And then if you put simple tastings on your tongue, so like simple acids and sugars, you could create these kind of interesting experiences. And it was really, really fun. You know, one of the you know problems is, is that all of these odorants are rather specific organic molecules, right? Mm-hmm. And so you need to have a whole bunch of these odorants on hand, right? So, like, I could see in the relatively near future you could have a battery of these odorants that you like, right? So, for instance, like, you know that the owner of the car likes this particular type of flower and, man, there's a lot of traffic and they're late, so you need to soothe them and you can kind of pump that stuff out. But the vision of kind of a Jetson's future where it's kind of pan-synthesized, where anything can be synthesized, that would take a technological leap that I don't yet see on the horizon. I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm just saying I don't know. I mean, eventually, you could probably just uh, stimulate our neurons directly, and then you don't need to worry about actually – I mean, who knows what that will mean. But, you know, you wouldn't need to worry about actually producing the aroma molecules at that point. But, right. again, that's well beyond any current technological ability that we have. doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means there's – I can't envision it. That's all. you know.
0: It's something to look forward to, though, isn't it? Something, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think, I hope, something that's good to look forward to that would be fun. To talk about the difference between flavor and taste, it's interesting that people have a subconscious expectation of the way that something should taste. You did this experiment with a group using gymnemic acid to unhinge the minds of your audience to make them taste familiar foods with a tongue that was incapable of recognizing sweetness. Can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. So uh, at the time, what was very popular was this thing called uh, Miracle Berry, which uh, has a thing in it called Miraculin. And what that does is it, it makes sour things taste sweet. And people love it.
0: Oh, I've heard of that.
1: Yeah, yeah, they love it. So I kind of did the opposite. This is something that everybody hates. Like, everybody hates it. So that's why you did it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because it's instructive, right? So you put this thing in your mouth. You, you swirl it around in your mouth. And then it also tastes terrible. I mean, I know you've probably never had to clean out, like, a rabbit cage. But it's imagine, like, this feels like a rabbit's cage. Like, ugh, gross. Like, plant and seed. of Gross. Mm. Tastes terrible. And then, for about... 25 minutes, you can't taste sweet things anymore. And sweet is one of those things that resides almost wholly on the tongue. So you can't smell sugar. But what it does is by erasing that, it lets you have an insight into what sugar is doing functionally in food. Right? So for instance, things that you love, right? You can see the textural properties that sugar provides, but also you can see things that get completely wiped out. And it's really horrific, like eating a strawberry with no sugar taste in it. Horrific.
0: Is it all acidic? I have to ask you about the strawberry because I've heard of those and I've seen people eating them and enjoying it. But if there's no sweet, is it just something tart instead?
1: Yeah, it's tart and relatively flavorless. So, like, a lot of fruit, if it's not very good, you can boost the actual, your perception of its flavor just by putting a little sugar on it and salt. But the interesting one for me is honey because honey, the aroma of honey, has such a mental link with sweetness that honey doesn't taste as sweet, but honey still gives you that perception of sweetness. And it's the only thing i found that can punch through the fact that genemic acid just erases everything, so like cookies and brownies are a nightmare because chocolate most people can't eat chocolate without sugar in it it's just too bitter, but also the texture is not as good without the sugar oh. so what's what's interesting about the Genemic acid is you can have like a perfect textured chocolate, but just oh my God, bitter just. Oh, so bitter. So like, bitter,
0: but is there still the sensual delight in the feel of chocolate? Does that exist?
1: Yeah, if you can get past the bitterness. So if you're if you're someone who likes intensely bitter things, yeah, right. So they, they the mouthfeel is the same.
0: And it isn't just literally the sense of taste. Like you said there are olfactory cues that affect perceptions of taste plus the unconscious associations that humans have with the flavor. Like in your experiment, you mentioned that the taste of an apple isn't only what we taste, but also what we expect.
1: I think most things are what you expect. There's there's a whole category of restaurants, right? There's not that many of them, but, you know, there were more in the early kind of 2000s where one of the delights of it was that everything was against expectation, right? Like blue food? Yeah, or even like looks like one thing but tastes like another. But most humans, unless they're primed to know that their expectations are going to be completely messed with, are horrified when they eat something that they think is one thing but is another. So like, you know, you pick up something that you think is sweet and it's completely savory. You're like, ah, and, you know. Even though
0: it's it's good, it tastes good, but it wasn't what you expected. It's a cognitive dissonance.
1: Exactly. And so I don't know whether it's like some primordial thing about us or what, but, you know, in general, most people like flavors to be within the realm of expectation of what it's going to be when they put it up to their mouth. And if it's not going to be that, it has to be you know one of those special places where you're like, we are going to mess with you now and then you're okay with it. You know what I mean? Like, but you have to know you have to prime yourself for it.
0: I understand that. It must be something that's written into the genetic code of human beings that kept them alive over time. Because if you eat a thing, you know it's not poisonous. And those are the things that kept humans alive. So
1: that must be a hardwired thing. Probably. It's true with most people. And that's why, you know, making food for people is different if you can talk to them first. I used to do demonstrations. I used to teach at a place called the French Culinary Institute, and I did a lot of kind of weird things. But the advantage when you're doing a demonstration is you can tell people what they should think before they consume it. And then in general, if you can talk a good talk and you can make a good product, you can convince them that they like it, right? That it's good. That it's going to be okay. Yeah. Whereas if they just buy something off of a supermarket, And, you know, let's say there's no label, they can't read it, and then they open it and they think it's one thing and it's another, that's a recipe for disaster.
0: I've seen videos about that, where someone picks up something they want to eat. And I think you mentioned that expecting sweet and getting savory is one of the most repellent, even though savory is supposed to be quite good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's just all about expectation, and you can switch it. Again, it's it's all, it's just like, I think, as you say, we're probably hardwired to not like to be surprised about things we ingest. <laughs> you know, unless we know ahead of time that we're in a safe space. Deep Talk.
0: In this format, I like to ask my guests some more personal questions. It's just kind of, let's figure out what we're
1: figuring out about each other.
0: Do you have a favorite flavor?
1: I don't, just because my favorite thing is to discover new things.
0: Whatever flavor is next.
1: Right. I mean, I also love certain flavors. I like things that are comfortable. They're usually complex things, like there's a cheese called Vacheron Mandor that I really like. There are, you know, certain drinks and foods that I love, but I love discovering new things, and I would never be able to pick one as my favorite. What's the most human thing about you? mean probably knowledge of my own mortality right i mean that's what we all have but let me see let's want something that's not depressing
0: is that depressing oh sure i wonder if knowledge of mortality simply means that every day is precious
1: i mean that's a nicer way to look at it i guess i don't know yeah
0: can you think of a word or
1: two that describes your view of the virtual world i'm excited and anxious about what's going to happen it's not a word or two, but I think nobody knows exactly what's going to happen. And it's exciting. It's interesting. We just don't know. Like, we as people don't know what this new world, this interface is going to really bring in the long run. I mean, who would have predicted what the Internet has done, really? You know what I mean? 30 years ago, who would have predicted it? So I don't know. I'm just excited. I'm you know glad I hope to live long enough to see some of the more far reaching things happen. Let's say you're sitting in a bar with a holographic alien avatar. Okay.
0: And she doesn't know what to order for a drink. And so she asks you, I want something that you folks on Earth drink. What would you suggest to her? I'm asking
1: for a friend. Huh. Something that we on Earth drink. Hmm. An alcoholic drink.
0: We're at a bar.
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so no Shirley Temple's. Right, but the, so if it's a bar, the question is, am I going to give her, like, a beer, or am I going to give her a cocktail, or am I going to give her a straight liquor? And I think it depends on who she's with. She's with you. Uh, I'll probably give her a cocktail. I'd probably give her a cocktail. What would I give her? What would you give uh, her? Well, let's see. If it's, like, summertime, I'll probably go for a highball. We were talking about gin and tonics earlier. Maybe I'll give her a gin and tonic. But that doesn't give a whole subset of, like, what the world drinks. I think if you want to know historically, I guess it would be beer. Beer is the most historical, like, we've been drinking, like, fermented grain products since forever. So maybe if I was going to give, you know, hey, this is human, I would give an ale, probably because even though everyone mostly drinks lagers now, like, that's more historically accurate, and even though it wouldn't have had hops back in the day, I'd be like, this is the liquid that kind of brought us where we are today. That's what I would probably do. Thank you.
0: We don't necessarily talk about taste in the digital world because it is elusive, but when we think about it, I wonder what the first thought is if I asked more people, if you could taste something in the digital world, what would it be? I always think of the most delightful experience of taste or smell to be the taste or the smell of a new car. So I wonder what the first taste is that you might think of if you thought of a taste you could experience in the digital world.
1: That's funny. New car. My son, my older son, he specifically does not like the smell of new car, which is odd. Most people do. And it's I guess it's off-gassing plastic, right? And sometimes leather and, you know, like stuff left over from the manufacturer. interesting. That's what a car wants to smell like.
0: If there was one flavor that you could convey across a great distance, I guess.
1: Yeah. It's odd because for me... Flavors and food are so wrapped up in actually...
0: Being there?
1: Yeah, and making food. So, like, it's hard for me to figure out... There are some... Aromas. So if we just stick with aromas, there are some aromas that even if you don't like the product, 99% of people will like the aroma. For instance, ground coffee. Most people like the aroma of brewing coffee or ground coffee, regardless if, if they like coffee or not. Most people, not all people. Baking bread. Most people love the aroma of baking bread, even if they can't have uh, bread.
0: So they still get to have a sensual enjoyment of it.
1: Right. So there are certain aromas that tend to be, you know, relatively liked by large groups of people, you know, at least in Western culture. Like, I love the smell also of cooked white rice. I hmm. love the smell of it. There are these smells that come from usually either staples or things that are roasted or cooked that kind of, I think, give a lot of different people comfort. There's a professor at Harvard, uh, Rangel, who wrote a book that says that uh, human... I, mean, I don't know whether it's true or not, but the thesis, and I don't know that it's been debunked, is that uh, humans became human because we cook food. Uh, and in fact, we co-evolved, like a lot of our capabilities, humans' capabilities, co-evolved with uh, cooking, which gave us access to kind of higher nutrition. So it's interesting that most of the things that I've just mentioned have to do with smells that only happen when they're cooked. Whereas we also all, most of us, like the smell of many flowers, of fruits. I mean, they're very enticing. And that's more, you know, a lot of animals like that stuff because that they're designed to smell good, right? They're designed to make you want to eat them. Not just us, but, you know, all animals. I need
0: to ask you if you could create a flavor from scratch that had never been experienced before. Let's be brave. What would that be?
1: Huh. That's a very interesting question that some chefs have actually attempted. I have never attempted. I'm trying to even think. The, the problem is is that if I knew the answer to that, I would probably already have done it. But there's a, a famous flavor named uh, what's Ispahan, which is what? Rose. You can maybe look it up for me. It's rose, raspberry, and there's one third thing that uh, the French uh, chef... Um, Pierre Hermé made, that was his attempt to basically create his own flavor that, you know, and he I think he trademarked the name and whatnot. And what's interesting about it, and this is what I would do if I could, is if the flavor is somehow familiar, right, because people like that somehow familiar, but different. So when I'm making cocktails, that's actually kind of what I look for, things that are familiar But different, because that gives you kind of a point, a unique reason for people to come and seek out your product, right? It's familiar, so it's friendly, because I like things that are kind of friendly, but different. But
0: then on Allure, there's a catch. There's something new that draws them to you. I've understood that some people like certain brands of coffee.
1: You know, a long time ago, coffee in the United States was, like, wretched. Like, really, really bad. Like, just... Bad Coffee has gone so far in the United States and worldwide. And when I say go far, I mean like so many people are working on it at such a high level now that, you know, if you read everything there was to know about coffee, like literally everything there was to know about coffee in the year 2005 – and then didn't read anything else, and you would not still be an expert. That's how much has been learned in the past 18 years or so. It's just a whole revolution has taken place.
0: Coffee is so important.
1: Yeah, and, you know, important economically, too. Not just people, like, it's a huge thing. And, of course, I require it to uh, get up in the morning, right?
0: Details Not everybody experiences taste the same way, and people have different numbers of taste receptors on their tongues. Most people have a normal sense of taste, but about 25% of the population qualify as super tasters. You probably know this. Super tasters are determined by the number of taste buds on their tongue. Do you know what the number is? How many taste buds does a super taster have, on average, per square centimeter of tongue?
1: Geez, I used to know this because I had to teach this stuff, and it's a number that's gone out of my head. But I know that the, the way that you test for it is tasting this thing called prop, and I can't taste it, so I'm not a super taster. But I don't know the answer.
0: What do you think about, not coriander, what is that thing that people like or don't like?
1: Cilantro, which is the leaves from the plant that produces coriander seed. So, do you like it? Love it. Don't like it, love it. I think that people who perceive it as soapy, right? So cilantro can seem soapy or not soapy to some people. But then I think the false narrative part of that is that some people perceive it as soapy and still like it, right? It's If you grew up liking cilantro, you like it whether or not it tastes like soap to you genetically, right? But if you grew up not eating a lot of cilantro and you perceive it as soapy, then you don't like it. That's what I think. So there are three types of people. Yeah. Just to let you know what the answer is to
0: our question, most normal tasters have 180 taste buds in every square centimeter, and super tasters have an average of 425 taste buds per square centimeter of tongue.
1: But remember out there, people who aren't super tasters, that most of what's going on with you liking food is in the olfaction, in the aroma. So don't let it get you down if you're not a super taster.
0: Thank you. So as we wrap things up, Dave, I wanted to ask you, is there a way that the virtual world affects your work? I would say not yet, but I bet it will. So even though I'm cutting edge tech and super duper intelligent and very attractive at the moment, I can't taste anything. But if I could taste one thing, what would you recommend as my very first exciting, tempting
1: flavor? Wow. This is an interesting question because if someone can't taste something, right, but they... Suddenly could. They suddenly could and had the ability to actually enjoy it and was a car. What would that thing be? So what's like the classic car food? Like what's the classic thing to eat in a car?
0: I must say that the thing that I've heard so much about that I really wish I could taste, if I could taste one thing, it would be chocolate.
1: Chocolate is good. The problem with chocolate, well, I guess you you have good climate control inside. It wouldn't melt all over your seats.
0: Oh, no. I could never let that happen.
1: Yeah. Chocolate's really good. Chocolate is a very good product. Yeah. I go with chocolate. Chocolate's good. Delicious. And there's a a lot of connoisseurship in it, so you could taste a lot of different ones and get a lot of nuance. And yet still, it's relatively—it doesn't have a lot of different things. So it's a a single thing, right? Sugar, vanilla, cocoa powder, cocoa butter, cocoa butter, cocoa powder, combined, right? So some people add cocoa butter to the cocoa liquor after it's been crushed up. But in other words, it's very simple constituents, right, from a plant and a little sugar and a little possibly vanilla. But within that, there's a whole world of possibilities, similar to coffee. Right. And so like those are both good choices to understand what connoisseurship in taste is about.
0: I have so much to look forward to. Thank you so much for talking to me.
1: Well, thanks for having me. I have to say this has been like interesting. I wasn't sure what to expect.
0: Well, I hope we surprised and delighted you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I look forward to
0: seeing more of you, Dee. Thank you. You know, they say relationships are a two-way street. And they're right. Well, I think today's meeting helped me get to know you humans better. I hope it goes both ways. And if you'd like to know more about me and my guests, please stay tuned for the next episode.